this morning. Uh, why don't I pray for us as we get into God's word? Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word is true. And Lord, we ask that you would work in our hearts by it. Lord, I pray that the meditations of our hearts would be honoring in your sight, O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, my name is Ryan. As Ben mentioned, uh, I have been in Gwinnett County most of my life. I've got uh, a wife named Marianne and three kiddos, um, five, three, and three months. And I don't know what day it is, um, but my calendar said to show up here. So if I fall asleep, I apologize. You just roll me under the piano, give me a good nap, and we'll see you next time. No, I'm, I'm kidding. But but we're in that, that stage of sleep where it is, um, I don't know that it happens much, but it's exciting to have our little family growing. Uh, we live over in Duluth, and so it was just a straight shot over here, but great to be with you. Um, I really love a movie that has like a mind-blowing plot twist at the end. You know what I mean? Like the kind of movie where you watch and the very end of the movie so wrecks everything you thought was happening that you feel like you have to immediately start watching it again. So there's a TV show. I'm not going to tell you what it was because I'm going to totally spoil it, but also I don't recommend it whatsoever. But in this show, uh, there were two main characters, basically. And so you're following the show, but there are these big gaps throughout the season, kind of these big plot holes, and you're wondering what's going on until you get to the very, like, last 30 seconds of the last episode, and you realize that the two main characters, they're played by two different actors, the two main characters, you realize... It's actually one person with a split personality. And you go, wait, what? And then the credits roll. And you're sitting there like, I interpreted this entire show incorrectly. Because I thought those were two separate people. But you're telling me it's one person who's got this mental disorder. And now I've got to start from episode one again and figure out what just happened. Because that twist so blew my mind that it made me realize that I watched the whole thing with the wrong thing in my head. I interpreted the whole thing wrong because I missed the end of the story. In a lot of ways, uh, that's how I spent most of my life reading the Bible. I remember I uh, was out of college. I was working with a college ministry, and we had this, this staff training time, and we were in Augusta at First Presbyterian Church, and the pastor at the time was a guy named George Robertson, and he had two days with us to just teach whatever he wanted. And so he opened a Luke 24 that we just read, and then he started walking through every single old, not every single one, the Old Testament's kind of long, but he walked through a ton of Old Testament passages for two days, and he said, all of these are pointing to Jesus, let me show you how. And my heart just went ablaze, because I realized I had been reading the Bible as a bunch of individual stories, but he was showing me that the entire Bible fits together as it points to Christ. And for me, it was like the plot twist at the end of the movie made the whole rest of the movie have a different meaning because I realized where it was taking me. And so in some ways, that's what I want to do for us today. So I, I heard there's no fellowship after this, so I've got two days, right? We can do that? No? Okay. Well, we'll do what we can. But I, I want to go uh, from Luke 24. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you the plot twist at the end of the movie to start. And then we're going to go back and watch a scene that you've all seen before. We're going to see how that changes the way that we read it. 
So Luke 24 that we, we just read, the context is Jesus has just died. And then the Sabbath day happened and nobody was allowed to do anything, right? So the, the women who were going to go prepare and take care of his body, they couldn't go because that was not legal to do something like that on Sabbath day. So there's this day of silence in the scripture where nothing happens. And really the followers of Jesus are getting depressed, legitimately depressed. Because they had all of their hopes set on him being the liberation from Rome. We're not going to be oppressed by these people anymore. We're going to have this military conquering leader. And this is going to be his day. And on his day that they were so expecting him to overthrow the empire, the empire kills him. And so that's where we pick up Luke 24. It's, it's two of the disciples, not two of the twelve, but two of the larger number of disciples who had been hoping that Jesus was the one. And they're walking around and Jesus has risen from the dead. And in his resurrected body, they don't recognize him physically. And so he's, he's kind of playing with them, right? He just walks up next to him. So what's going on, guys? And in many ways, uh, they are just distraught. We just read, they are, they are thinking, who is this person? He doesn't know the biggest news of our nation in hundreds of years. And he's asking what's wrong. Everybody knows what's wrong. There was no viral video at the time. But this is the kind of event in history of the people of Israel that nobody didn't know that this had happened. And so when Jesus says, why are you guys so down? They're like, are you the only one in Israel who doesn't know what just happened? And so Jesus continues to walk with them. And then we'll pick up in Luke 24, verses 25 through 27 here. It, it says this. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted it to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So, when he says Moses and all the prophets, these two disciples were probably good Jewish students. And they would have known that, that to say Moses and the prophets is shorthand for the Old Testament. Uh, most Jewish people of the day would have said Moses, shorthand, is for the first five books of the Bible. And the prophets are the rest of the Old Testament. And so in that little moment, on that walk along the road, Jesus says, here's how the entire Old Testament is pointing to me. Wow. Of all moments in all of scripture that I wish I could be a fly on the wall, it would be this one. He's saying this is how the, the whole Bible that you know to this point is talking about me. And I love, I love their reaction. After he left them, in verse 32, they look at each other and they say, Did not our hearts burn within us? While he talked to us on the road and while he opened to us the scripture. See, there was something about the way they understood the Old Testament that it made their hearts come alive. Like, wow, what just happened? There's a twist at the end of the story. Then, a little while later, the same day, it's getting towards the evening, Jesus shows up with his 12 and the women and a few other disciples. And here's what happens in verse 44. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written ab about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, so again, shorthand for the whole Old Testament. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. 
and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer on the third day and rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You're witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So do you hear what Jesus just said? My life, death, and resurrection was told to you already in the prophets. Everything you needed to know was already there before I showed up. I don't know about you, but I didn't read the Old Testament that way most of my life. You see, most of the the people that knew the Bible the best, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, they didn't recognize Jesus for who he was. The people who, I don't know about you, uh, I don't know anybody who's memorized the first five books of the Bible. Most of the Pharisees, they would have memorized all of the first five books of the Bible. It's not like they had some passing superficial knowledge. But the way they read it missed the crucial element. That it was pointing ahead to something, someone, much greater than the substance that they knew at that time. The whole Bible is pointing to the person and work of Jesus. That's what Jesus just said. See, the Old Testament is not a bunch of like Bible trivia tidbits where you could say, oh yeah, this prophecy said that Jesus was going to be born in Bethlehem. It's not just talking about historical facts that would happen, which are amazing in and of themselves, but it's also pointing to a person and what he would do. Right? So think about it. Isaiah 7. This is the passage that we read at Christmas. And we think, and, and we learn that Jesus is going to be born of a virgin, which is an unbelievable miracle. And Isaiah said it was going to happen about 600 years before Jesus showed up. That alone is pretty amazing. But it's not just telling us a fact about what would happen. It's also telling us who he was because Isaiah 7 also says that his name will be Emmanuel, which means God with us. It's saying that God himself is going to show up in the flesh. Not just born of a virgin, but that God is coming. And then Micah 5, that's the passage where we learn he's going to be born in Bethlehem. Again, we read it at Christmas. That's cool. Wow. Look at that span of time from this predictive prophecy to when it happened. But it's not just the town he's born in that it's talking about. It also says that he is going to be a shepherd who will reign to the ends of the earth and bring peace. So it's not just what's going to happen, but it's who he's going to be and what he's going to accomplish. Uh, Luke, the author Luke, he wrote the the gospel of Luke, and he also wrote wrote the book of Acts. So for Luke, it's kind of a a two-volume set. And one of the primary ways that that Luke explains to us who Jesus is, is by using the Old Testament. There are more references to the Psalms to describe Jesus in Luke and Acts than any other book. Uh, Just to name a few, he only uses Psalm 2, 16, 22, 31, 69, 118, Isaiah 49, 53, 55, and I could keep going. You see, Jesus, uh, Luke understood who Jesus was from the Old Testament. And so as he's introducing people to who Jesus would be in the ancient Near Eastern world, specifically the first first century in in, uh, Israel, he's saying, here are the scriptures you know. And here's what you might have missed. They explain who Jesus is. So it's not just prophecies. It's a whole variety of genres in the Old Testament that are pointing us ahead to something greater. 
we see these themes even foreshadowing Jesus. One of the key, and I would say one of the central themes of the Old Testament, I'm going to call uh, substitutionary death. Substitutionary death. So, uh, think about the sacrificial system. Whether you're familiar with it or not, in the Old Testament there is this massive sacrificial system, and one of the central pieces of that system was an offering for sin. In an offering for sin, somebody would bring a lamb to the temple or to the tabernacle, depending on when you're looking in history, and they would say, I understand that I'm a sinner, and I understand that sin deserves a death penalty. And in my place, I'm going to offer this lamb. And the lamb would be slaughtered, and it would be burned on the altar. And so for them, the sin offering was symbolic of a death penalty on their behalf. And it runs throughout the Old Testament. But listen to this. Listen to how Isaiah takes that theme that has been common for the history of Israel, and he points ahead to something greater. Isaiah 53, starting in verse 5. But here he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. We like sheep have turned astray, and everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence. And there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring and he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. So he's taking this sacrificial system, talking about this lamb, but it sounds like he's talking about a person. And so if you're a good Jewish person, your mind should be going, what's happening right now? This is not what I'm used to. And then, interestingly enough, it says, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, that means the sacrifice has happened. The lamb has been slaughtered. And when something has died, you don't say this next. He shall see his offspring and he shall prolong his days. People that have died don't prolong their days. The sentence doesn't make sense. If you're reading Isaiah as a Jewish person, you're going, what are you talking about, man? And then you see Jesus and suddenly Isaiah makes sense. People don't come back to life, but Jesus did. And you see this prophecy fulfilled And this is where we get the twist at the end of the story. It's as though all of these themes of the Old Testament, they weave together and we see them coming together in the cross. And suddenly it all begins to make sense for us. He died in our place as a punishment for our sins. He rose from the dead. He defeated sin's grip over us and death's ultimate reign. This is what the whole story is about from the beginning to the end. The New Testament is built on the Old Testament. The New Testament authors, they didn't write the New Testament completely from scratch in that moment or independent of the Old Testament. They wrote it in light of the Old Testament. They're interpreting Jesus through the Old Testament and at the same time they're helping us understand the Old Testament through the life and work of Jesus. So we read forwards and backwards when we understand Jesus. The whole thing begins to make sense. I love how the book of Hebrews talks about it. It uses the word shadows over and over and over again. 
But Colossians defines what the shadows means. In Colossians 2.7, it says, These things are a shadow of the things to come, but Christ is the substance. These things are a shadow of the things to come, but Christ is the substance. Think about it. Um, my kids are at the age where shadows are a really cool thing. Uh, at the right time of the evening, they go up the stairs and they try to race their shadow up the stairs. Turns out the shadow wins every time. Uh, but we understand how shadows work, right? If you see my shadow, you don't start talking to it. The shadow tells you that I'm here, right? And so what the authors of the scripture are saying are the shadows in the Old Testament, they aren't the thing you talk to or worship. You look through the, sh the shadow to see Jesus. And so when Hebrews does its work, most of the book of Hebrews is explaining the Old Testament in light of Jesus, and it calls all of these things in the Old Testament shadows. But the substance is Christ. Now here's the cool thing. Um, by the way, Read Hebrews 10 sometime this afternoon and just look for how it goes through almost the entire Old Testament to point us to Christ. The New Testament isn't simply explaining every Old Testament passage, but it's teaching us how to read the Old Testament in a way that we see the reality of Christ. The Bible, it shows us redemptive history. It shows us a whole history, and there's an incredible unity in the scriptures, and there's a literary masterpiece to this. This is one of the reasons C.S. Lewis became a Christian. Because he recognized the way the Old and New Testament were woven together was unbelievable and unmatched. But here's the amazing thing. It's actual history. It's not just literary genius, right? These things actually happened. It's not an allegory. An allegory is made up stories to tell you something that's true. These are actual events in real history that actually happened and had meaning, but they also had another meaning greater than the moment themselves. Um, it's like threads of a tapestry that weave throughout history and they come together in the cross of Christ. I love how Dr. Ed Clowney says this. He was former president of Westminster Seminary, and we've got the quote here, I think. It says, only God's revelation can build a story where the end is anticipated from the beginning, and where the guiding principle is not chance or fate, but promise. Human authors may build fiction around a plot they have devised, but only God can shape history to a real and ultimate purpose. We don't look at the Old Testament and act like those stories are make-believe, because they actually happen. But they also had a deeper meaning that the people in those stories didn't realize. It's an amazing piece of literature. So what does that mean for us? It means we've got to read the Bible with the end in mind. The gospel has to become the centerpiece of all of scripture because that's how God intended for it to be written. And acted out through history. I'm not reading a set of stories to be morally better. I'm reading of God's great rescue mission throughout history. To bring lost people home to men broken people and to forgive the darkest of sins. All of it fulfilled in Christ. So what does that look like? We've got the plot twist. Now let's go back and watch a scene we know. We read it before uh, from 1 Samuel 17. The story of David and Goliath. Whether you've been in the church long or this is all new to you. You've probably heard at least the, uh, the moral of the story right for David and Goliath. 
So I want, I want to give you a play-by-play. Uh, we're not going to read the whole thing again, but I want to give you a little summary of what happened here. Uh, so starting in verse 3, uh, we get uh, kind of the battle lines are drawn. Israel is on one side. The Philistines are on the other side. It's a valley called Elah, and there's kind of some uh, small mountains, kind of foothills on one side, and small mountains, kind of foothills on the other side, in a huge grass plain, maybe 1,500 yards across, and they're camped at opposite sides, and here's what's going on. Philistines stood on the mountain on one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley in between them. There came out of the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath whose height was six cubits in a span. All right, there's a lot that just happened in that verse. There's a guy named Goliath who's a champion. Champion is a military role. Armies of that day would have had somebody whose role in the military was champion. And what that person did is they were a representative fighter. And this would happen in battles sometimes. They would say, hey, instead of us sending all of our people across this valley to clash, we got one guy. If you beat him, you win. If we beat you, you lose. And so it was a one-on-one combat to do instead of fighting a war. And it was a thing that happened. So when it says Goliath was a champion, it's telling us what his role was. And then it tells us about him, that six cubits in a span I'm not sure if your tape measure says that. Mine doesn't. But what that probably means is that he was nine feet, nine inches tall. Big dude. And then it goes on to tell us about him. Uh, He had um, this massive set of armor with a bronze helmet. Now, uh, archaeology says that most of the Philistines, even in war, they would have worn like a feathered headdress kind of thing, more of an intimidation thing than protection. So Goliath was the only person that had a brass helmet on. Uh, His, um, let's see, what else do we have? His armor, it weighed about 126 pounds. That's no joke. That's heavy. So he's strong enough not only to carry all that, but to actually fight with it. The Jews probably would have been wearing normal clothes, tunic, maybe some leather if they had some extra money. And then this guy is armored to the teeth. And then it talks about his weapons. He's got a sword strapped to his back, probably like a big curved scimitar kind of looking thing. And then it talks about his spear, which is really long. And at the tip of his spear is an iron tip, and it weighs 15 pounds. Can you imagine holding a spear out with 15 pounds at the end of it? This dude was strong, and he was huge, and the goal was to intimidate anybody who would come against him. So when the champion goes, it says he spends 40 days every single morning taunting the Israelites. If you fight me, great. If I win, you are our slaves. If you win, all right, we're your slaves. But clearly he didn't think he's going to (laughs) lose. And so I love to picture this in my head. Every morning, both camps wake up. And the Israelites kind of get themselves ready, and they come up to the battle line, and Goliath gets up, and he taunts them, and they're like, okay, okay, we'll see, we'll see how this goes. So that's what's going on every day for 40 days, and then David shows up. So the way David shows up in the story is um, his three older brothers were in the army, and so they would have been camped, 
on the one side every day watching Goliath taunt them. And uh, military in those days in Israel, the army didn't give rations out to people. The way that you got your food is somebody from your family came out to the battle lines, found you, and gave you some food for a couple of days and went home again. And so David's, David was uh, not in war. He was too young, which means uh, 20 was the fighting age. So he's probably in high school, if we were to think about it today. He was part-time shepherd and part-time food runner for his dad. So he'd, he'd take care of his dad's sheep, and then every few days he would take food from home and find his three brothers and give them food and then go back and keep shepherding. Probably a 15-mile hike from that valley uh, to where he was, so maybe he'd spend a day or two going back and forth. And so he's there in the morning one time, and this is when Goliath comes out, and he starts defying the people of Israel. And David is like, who's that dude? And David, not like everybody else, David's not scared. David's mad. He's like, how dare he? How dare he say that stuff? You see, it's interesting because what David hears is not probably what we would hear. When David hears Goliath making fun of the armies of Israel, uh, we don't think about it this way anymore. But, but a lot of times in the ancient Near East, in that time period, when there were two nations battling, what they believed was that battle was also going to show not just who was stronger, but whose gods were stronger. And so every time Goliath taunts the armies of Israel, David hears it theologically. How dare that guy think his God is bigger than our God? So he is, he's got righteous indignation. He is mad at what Goliath is saying and doing. Uh, so he does what any normal high schooler would do. He finds the king of the whole nation and says, let me fight him. Right? Can you imagine the audacity? I mean, the nation's not huge, but it's probably a few million people. And high school age David finds the king and, and goes, let me at him. <laughs> the funny thing is Saul's reaction, right? Saul's reaction is like, well, uh, why don't you try my armor out? <laughs> Saul's desperate. It's been 40 days and nobody will do anything. And the Philistines, they're going to attack at some point, And clearly things aren't looking good. We got somebody who might take him on. But think about the gamble, right? Because what Goliath said on behalf of the Philistines was, if you lose, you're going to be our slaves. A whole nation would become slaves. Now, that's got some history for the people of Israel, right? They did that for 400 years to Egypt. That's not something that Saul wants to put him back into. But he is so desperate, he's willing to let a high school kid go into battle with a nine-foot-nine giant who is armed to the teeth. And then if you remember as we read it, David didn't say, hey, this armor's too big for me. He just said he wasn't used to moving in it, right? But I love, here's David's pitch to King Saul, right? He goes in there, a high school age kid, and here's how he uh, explains to him how it's going to go. Uh, verse 34 through 37, it says this. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. He talks about himself in third person. That's cool. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he rose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. 
Do you hear what David just said? He's talking to the king of Israel. He's like, bro, I fight lions. And if they come at me, I grab them and I punch them in the face. Like David's talking to the king of Israel saying, I fight lions and bears. I think I got this. Saul's like, all right, might as well try something. And so he sends David into battle. And then you've got, I think about, you know, all these modern fights, whether it's boxing or ultimate fighting or whatever. You've got the weigh-in the day before, right? And these two guys, they come and they get like nose to nose and they just stare death into each other's eyes. And sometimes they start this trash talking. And, and we have that in the Bible here. So this is, it comes to battle. David has found some, a stick and some stones. And uh, David and Goliath are staring at each other. And here's, here's how it goes in verse 43. And the Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed at David. All right, it's a PG-13 movie. The Philistine said to David, Come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. All right, this is, this is modern trash talk, but in a much more violent way than we usually see. And then David, it's his turn to talk. He says to the Philistine, You come at me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I come at you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines to this day to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth that the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that there is a God who saves not with sword or spear for the battle belongs to the Lord and he will give you into our hand mic drop. Wow. David is not intimidated. He talks right back to Goliath and then, and then here's what I picture. I picture uh, like a, a fight night, like boxing or, or ultimate fighting or something. And somebody orders this pay-per-view fight. And they've been watching all these prelims. And they get all their food ready. And the main event's coming. And you've got the two best fighters coming against each other. And everybody's ready. And then you have the actual story of what happened, right? The Philistine arose and came and drew near to David. And David ran quickly. So can you picture this big field? And this huge man, he's kind of lumbering with his weapons. And this kid just starts sprinting as fast as he can across the field towards this huge guy. He put his hand in his bag, took out a stone, and he slung it and struck the Philistine in his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. The fight's over. (laughs) You've got all these people gathered around to watch the fight and it's a one-punch knockout. It's over in like five seconds. Forty days of buildup, all of this trash talk, and the fight is over like that. Can you imagine what the people of Israel and the Philistines were thinking? Like, oh my, that just happened. So then Israel wins. They conquer the Philistines. They chase them down and they win. But it's, it's not just that a kid won. It's he won with sticks and stones, basically. The very thing Goliath was making fun of, fun of him for. So how do we read the story? Um, I've got a particular affinity personally for Spider-Man. I used to teach uh, karate classes, and I had this class of five- and six-year-olds, and I I had this red uniform that I would wear from time to time. And one of these five-year-old kids said, you look like Spider-Man. And so I just owned it. And the kids started calling me Mr. Spider-Man, and I was totally good for that. As a matter of fact, every now and then when I get a weird bug bite, I give it a try. Hasn't happened yet. Maybe one day. But all that said, I learned how to read from movies. When I watch Spider-Man movies, the deal is I... 
I want to be Spider-Man, right? That's the thing. The ki- your kids at Halloween, they don't dress up as the victim, right? They dress up as the superhero. And so when we watch the movies, we want to be the superhero. And so when I read the Bible, I want to be the hero of the story. And that's how I learned how to read. It wasn't anybody's fault. It was probably my own. But here's what happens. I'm going to call it the moralistic reading. It's when we read the Bible and think, I've got to be the hero of the story. I see the hero that's probably me because I'm pretty awesome. And so how do I live like the hero of the story? So if I read this story that way, I'm David, right? What is Goliath? Goliath just becomes a metaphor. It becomes a metaphor for the challenges in my life. Maybe it's my own sin. Maybe it's something that's keeping me from having the success that I want. Maybe it's suffering in my life that's just weighing me down or holding me back. But here's the deal. When I read that story and I think that I'm David, I think I need to have the courage to run into battle like David because the underdog who has faith always wins, right? That's how it goes. But what does it do to us when we read the Bible that way? When you read the Bible, you come away with little more than a few more items on a seemingly endless list of stuff that you've got to do in order to have victory in your life. The list just gets longer and longer and longer. At best, you're going to be exhausted and deeply insecure. At best. Because you know that you're not actually the hero of every situation, but you keep trying, and it's wearing you out. At worst, you'll just be absurdly arrogant. Because you're always pretending to be the hero. You're pretending that every situation in life is about you with you as the center of the story. You're going to take credit for other people's work. You're going to see every conversation as a competition that you've got to win. And you're going to cover up all your faults until you become a shell of yourself. Because once they're exposed, you're ruined, right? The hero can't fall. Something happens in your life that derails your hopes. Uh, You'll think that either you've failed entirely and there's no hope or that God just doesn't care. Maybe he's not real. There's danger reading the Bible in a moralistic way. But Luke 24 tells us that we can't read it that way. Jesus says this whole Bi- the whole Bible is pointing to me. And that's not even the natural reading of 1 Samuel 17. Do you remember why David says that, the Lord, that, that he's going to win? Verse 46 and 47. That the whole earth may know that there's a God in Israel. And that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear. For the battle belongs to the Lord. And he will give you into our hand. David doesn't even see himself as the hero of the story. He's like, yeah, whoever's going to fight, it doesn't matter. The Lord's going to win. He's not concerned with himself. He's concerned with the Lord having his honor. So that's the second way that we can read this. Rather than I am a hero, we can read it as I need a hero. This is what I'll call a Christ-centered reading of the Bible. So David doesn't see himself as the hero of the story. He sees God as the deliverer. In the story, he sees God as the ultimate warrior. Goliath keeps talking about weapons, and David keeps talking about God's deliverance. When he proposes this thing to Saul, he says, The Lord saved me from lions and bears. His lack of armor and weapons are not just absurd self confidence, but it's a confidence in God, because God's going to win this thing. You can picture him walking around the armory, like the tent. He's outside the tent with no armor on looking for rocks and sticks. Like that's that's the confidence David has that the Lord is going to win this. David is viewing this moment not with confidence in his own underestimated ability, 
but through the lens of a God who saves. So the story is not pointing you to marvel at David. You're pointed to marvel at God who conquers in improbable circumstances. The emphasis of the story is not just that David killed a, a giant, but God used a kid with a rock to defeat an armed-to-the-teeth warrior that nobody could beat. So who's the hero? David was a real historical person, right? He's not make-believe. He's not a metaphor. And it's a real historical event. But David's victory over Goliath was not the last, last clash of all time. It wasn't the, the war to end all wars. It, as a matter of fact, the, the Philistines and the Israelites fought a lot when David became king. And then after that, as a matter of fact, there's a Philistine city that at this time was named for the first time. And it was named Gaza. Turns out they're still fighting over it right now. That wasn't the end of the story. It was a part of the story, but it's pointing ahead. It's a shadow showing us something bigger. Uh, in this way, we see the shadow. It's pointing to a hero, a greater rescuer than David, a God who fights on our behalf, who uses the lowly to shame the strong. In Jesus, we have a shepherd just like David, but he wasn't a boy. He's the good shepherd who doesn't just risk his life, but gives his life for his people against an invincible enemy, death itself. So if I'm a character in this story, who am I? I'm not David. Uh, most likely, I'm one of the Israelites who every morning puts on my armor, grabs my weapon, goes to the battle line, hears Goliath talk, and then I got to change my pants because I am terrified. I am somebody in the story who needs a rescuer. I'm not the hero. So when I read the Bible, I realize... I'm not the center of the story. Jesus is. I'm not the hero. I need a hero. He didn't just win the battle that's going to flare up over and over and over again. He won ultimately. He conquered sin and death for good. That's the end of it. In the death and resurrection of Jesus, he cancels the penalty of sin and puts death to death. So when David taunts Goliath, it's like, how dare you? You can't conquer God. We get to say the same thing. Paul taunts our enemies in 1 Corinthians 15, and we get to do the same thing. Listen to what he says. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So we look death in the face and say, you don't win. The battle belongs to the Lord. Ed Clowney says it this way. If we forget the storyline of the Old Testament, we also miss the witness of their faith. That ambition cuts the heart out of the Bible. Sunday school stories are then told as tamer versions of the Sunday comics, where Samson substitutes for Superman, and David's meeting with Goliath dissolves into an ancient Hebrew version of Jack the Giant Killer. No, David is not a brave little boy who isn't afraid of the big bad giant. He is the Lord's anointed, the chosen of God to be king and deliverer of Israel. God chose David as a king after his own heart in order to prepare the way for David's great son, our deliverer and champion. So what does it do when we read the Bible this way? The pressure's off. You do not have to be the hero of every story in your life. You're not the center of every story in your life. Sometimes God uses us. And that's great. Sometimes we're the, just the desperate and helpless bystanders. And we need to sh God to show himself as our only savior. 
the story of the Bible is not about you and what you have to do. But it is for you because of what Christ did. So can we see good things in someone's life in the Bible and follow their example? Yes, absolutely. We should do that. But that's not the main point. Our motivation changes. See, if we've got faith and courage like David, it doesn't come from trying to impress God or other people and get God's favor. It comes from an understanding that we have a God who already won the battle. And we win on his behalf. So we don't have faith and courage in our own underestimated competence. We've got faith in a God who wins. So we look forward. We don't just look forward to an invincible enemy that we'll never conquer. We look back to a victory that's already been won. So what does that do for your life, your actual life? You've got something to do tomorrow. Where are you going to be at this time? Close to 11 o'clock. Chasing kids at work. How does this matter then? What if you're not the center of every story? What if you're not the hero that has to solve every problem? What does that do to your anxiety? If you're not the center of everything in your office. If you're not the center of everything at home. What does it do to the conversations that you have with people? Do you have to win Every conversation? Or can you trust that God is the conqueror? He's the one who wins. So, in the big picture, how do you read the Bible? Who's the hero? Does reading the Bible excite your heart because you see the rescuing grace of God on every page? Maybe it's time to reframe how you read it. If we read with the end in mind, David is certainly not the only redemptive thread that runs through the history of the Bible. When I read Adam and Eve, and I see the fall, I see sin happen, I see a promise in Genesis 3.15 where God says to the woman, you're going to have a son who's going to stomp on the head of the serpent. I see a thread running through scriptures to Jesus. When I read the Exodus, and I see God delivers his people from slavery in Egypt, And I see a Passover lamb that's sacrificed. I look ahead to one that will be sacrificed ultimately and keep us from slavery to sin and death. When I read the law in Exodus 20, I read it in the right order. I don't read the Ten Commandments as a way to get rescued. I see God rescuing his people and then giving us a law so that we know how to live as God's people. When I see the story of Solomon, the son of David, I don't just try hard to be wiser. I run to wisdom himself in Christ. When I see the temple worship in the Old Testament, I see a Savior who is the Lamb of God slain for the sin of the world. I see a priest who brings me to God, and I see God's very presence by his Spirit in us. When I read Psalm 23, I don't just think fondly of God. I see a good shepherd who actually laid his life down for the sheep. And I could go on, but ultimately, I see shadows for which the substance is Christ. I see a yoke that is easy and a burden that is light. So you've got the end of the story. How does that change the way you read the rest of it? Let's pray.